Okay. All right. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. Tonight, I have a very special guest, and they're all special guests, but this one has a spot in my heart because she was able to take me through a three-part journey of my story and was able to pull out of it or pull out of me a lot of emotion and a lot of, you know, growth, I think, and a lot of questions and that I had for myself and was able to, you know, go back and, and revisit and listen to those episodes and, and, and kind of help to heal and to grow from it. Susan Casey is the host of the Leap podcast, and she is also a licensed mental health counselor specializing in grief and loss. Hey, Susan. Hi, Dustin. It's so nice to be here tonight with you. Thank you so much for having me. No, well, thanks for coming on the show. And it's eight o'clock where you're at, which is kind of late on the East Coast for you. So I definitely appreciate you accommodating my schedule and jumping on the show at this time. Well, yeah. So if I stumble over my words, that's why. It's just late at the end of a work day, but hopefully I'll be able to I'll be able to respond with some thoughtful answers. Well, that's awesome. And so basically let's just start off licensed mental health counselor. You, you focus on grief and loss. What, what lanes of, of mental health do you, is your focus or your, what would they call your primary Yep. Thing. Well, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a uh, licensed clinical social worker and there's lots of different degrees and whatnot that, you know, that fall under the umbrella of counselors. And so I do direct practice on the side of my, of what has been my full-time job now for many, many years, where I really train therapists around the country on something called measurement-based care. But on the side with my little private practice, I really focus on grief and loss. And, and I'll be launching a course also on the therapeutic benefits of writing through grief and loss. And I really started to dive much more deeply into that work after the death of my brother in 2014. Yeah, I remember you you talking a little bit about that. And of course, I didn't, we, we were talking about my story, so I couldn't really pivot and, and, and ask you a whole lot about that. But was that sort of your, you know, cause everybody has like a nowhere to go, but up moment, right. In their life. Yeah. And yeah. was that the one for you? Yes, absolutely. So my younger brother who was 43 at the time, he was, he lived in Bali, Indonesia. He was head of spas for four seasons and he was getting ready to oversee spas for the Rosewood hotels. And he was opening those bars across Asia and developed a serious illness and died within three days. It was, I've written a whole book about it. It was the most catastrophic event that has ever happened to me and my family and really changed a lot of things for me. So that definitely was my darkest time in my life, actually. Scary, dark. Yeah. How, how did you get through it? So it's all, you know, I believe that just not, um, I mean, not, not to take away from the, like, you know, the book or anything like that, but just, you no, know. but then the book was got, that is what got me through it. So it's just interesting that when I had got my master's, when I, when I got my master's in fine arts for writing, I wrote my dissertation on the therapeutic benefits of writing through grief, loss, and trauma long before my brother died. And 
I had done a lot of volunteer work at the adult prison systems for both men and women and also in the juvenile justice system for juveniles where I created a therapeutic writing course essentially. And so when my brother died, I had to, I had to test my own theory and I started to blog my way through my grief. And then just, it was touching a lot of people who also had lost a loved one. And so people were forwarding these posts to other people that thought that they could benefit from, from my writing. And so that's where the book came from. I couldn't find a lot of books on sibling loss. And I started to, I, I hadn't intended on writing a book, but that's what ended up happening. And I interviewed people from around the world who had lost a sibling. And it took me three and a half years to write the book and when it was finally picked up by a publishing house. And that is what saved my life, was interviewing and talking to other siblings. I also, at that time, got certified as a bereavement group facilitator. So I went to the Center for Grieving Children and ran bereavement groups. So I really immersed myself um, in allowing myself to feel deeply my way through the death of my brother. Yeah, that and, sucks. And, and the it, impact it had on my whole family. Well, definitely. Sorry for your loss. What do you, why do you think it's so impactful writing, you know, in, in, in healing, writing your way through it? What is it, you know, as somebody who's done that, why do you feel that it's so impactful? It's impactful and there's research, right? So when I was writing my dissertation on this, I did a ton of research and a lot of authors over time, memoirs that they've written, you know, it's the same thing. They're writing their way through their experiences. And it allows when we process on paper, when we get things out of our head, that's why journaling, we, we hear about how, you know, journaling our thoughts are. And it's because you're getting it out of your head and you're putting it somewhere. You know, we can really get on a hamster wheel in our head and we go around and around and around. And even when you speak it, it's not the same. It doesn't have the same impact as writing it. And of course, there are writing prompts that I also, when I'm, when I'm working with people through their trauma and writing their way through trauma, I also have some pretty specific prompts to kind of help them through that process. But for myself, it literally was writing my way through what happened to my brother and then interviewing all of these people and eventually integrating my story with their story and really seeing themes. And so, you know, when you think about when you're going through a traumatic event, which you know very well in your own life story, you're very close to it. And the further you get away from it, the more you can look at it as more of an observer than an actual participant in that trauma, if that makes sense. And so with time, as I was writing, I could, I could really zoom out and I'm not going to say this happened overnight, right? It was a three and a half year process where I was, I cried. I, I really felt those emotions over and over and over again as I was writing. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. No, no, it does. Absolutely. <clears throat> My next question is, what do you think makes it so difficult for people to read and write? 
because it's it feels like it's something I mean, even with me somebody who you know has been to prison i read over 300 books while i was there hardly read anything when i'm out even when even when i before prison i just was not a, a reader was not a writer i can i can articulate well i, I just don't have the patience to sit there and, and do it right it, it's something it, it, and so I feel like I'm not alone in that though. I feel like there's a lot of people that are just too busy or just don't have the time or don't even want to be bothered with reading and writing. And it's not something that I feel is focused on a whole lot in school either. It's like, it felt like you got enough to, to get you through being able to understand what's written, the written word, you know, how to do these things, how to, you know, identify this, identify that. So you could navigate your way through you know, having to sign stuff for school or for, you know what I mean? But it's like the bare minimum, right? It it, it doesn't get taught as like a passion. I don't know, man. I, I just. Well, it's a, I was an English. Sense, I, just... No, no you, you are. I was just an English major too. So I, <laughs> so I love, I've always loved reading and writing. It just happens to be a passion. And I think that's, that's a really good point. I mean, sometimes it's a passion of people, right? You know, these people who just, they just devour books and, you know, or people who love to write. I think also what's happening. So I, so the first part of your question is, I think it's a passion. I, I definitely think there are more people who migrate toward, you know, reading fiction or nonfiction or journaling versus writing, etc. I also think that we live in a world that has changed so much that we 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 consume in sound bites. Think TikTok, think Instagram, think social media where, you know, we make jokes about how it's not even a joke actually. There's, you know, that 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 our attention span is shorter than that of a goldfish because we're constantly, we are constantly moving for think about it, email, text messaging, messenger. There are a million ways that we communicate with each other and it's very quick. It's at lightning speed. People don't even use email anymore, right? Mm -hmm. They go right to text. And have you ever had anyone text you? And if you don't text right back, they're like, hello, are you there? Are you there? Question mark, question mark. Yeah, question. <laughs> because it's, it's all everything caps. is all, all caps. <laughs> it's immediate. Things are very, very immediate. And we don't have that patience writing and reading both take patience and that's why i think that even our consumption around reading even blogging you know you, you can look at the trending with blogging it's going to be shorter or people are not going to take the time to read it now we've gone to videoing because you know we're we're everybody has a different learning style and so it's this incredible consumption i mean think about tiktok for example why do you think tiktok is so wildly popular right now and i don't especially among the younger kids any idea not just not just the younger kids no I, you're right it's true i was thinking i get, young I, adults, get on, I get on tiktok right and i start yeah, scrolling and i start scrolling and i'm i'm laughing i'm laughing harder at this at this stupid little app than anything that i watch on tv any movie that's ever come out you know what i mean it's like movies are just they're, they're not the same we're, we're in a different place like comedy's not the same the movies are not the same you know and even the movies how we used to get them you can't you can't get a funny movie anymore without having to rent it you you be you would like the hangover here's a good example 
that's a classic funny movie no matter how many times i watch that movie i'm laughing laughing my ass <laughs> right <laughs> you they put it on in I, I was looking for it and I used to be one of those guys that was, you know, would pirate stuff off the internet. Right. So I download the movies and, you know, bootleg them and, and whatever. And so I always, I had this hard drive that was loaded with them. Right. And I'm like, you know, Oh, we've got streaming now. I, I pay for Netflix. I don't need this anymore. And I think I've deleted everything. Right. Well, come to find out that no, not only they have them, but you have to rent them all now. Any of these movies, like The Hangover, Why Him? No, it's well, it's funny that you say that. I totally know what you're talking about because we pay for Prime. And even on Prime, you end up having to pay $2.99 for these movies, like you just said, The Hangover, that were made a million years ago. Because we just went through this over Christmas. We were looking for funny movies to, yes. to watch. And it's true, but think about it. Even the way that we're consuming those types of things. Look at Netflix series. And I have a theory about that, too. Net Netflix series. I think that people are addicted to Netflix series, again, because it's, it deepens the story. We, beget, we get more vested in the people, you know, in the characters. And But we, what do we do? We binge watch it because mm -hmm. we can't stand. We don't have the patience. Like, we can't. <laughs> and, I, and I'm guilty of this, too. I, I mean, oh. we, I just binged watch White Lotus. Have you seen that, by the way? It's so mm -hmm. good. <laughs> No, and I'm into it, I'm into Yellowstone, and they make oh, you wait. Yes. They they don't they, they do. don't they don't but they don't feed into my my inability to <laughs> to be patient and and like not wait and because that's what I do. I, I would do that. Ozarks, that's a good example. Oh, yeah, seven episodes in one night. You know what I mean? Too tired to go to work the next day. <laughs> and it's brilliant. Think about how brilliant it is, and then. Yep. And then YouTube videos. And I mean, I, I can't, I, I don't watch TV anymore, right? You stream everything through mm -hmm. Netflix or Prime or, you know, all of, so my, my, my point is the consumption. There is so much consumption and there's very quick gratification. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, here I am a writer and trying to get a book out into the world takes two to three, it, well, it takes however long it takes to write it, then you got to get it to a publisher and then it takes two years to get it on the bookshelf. Mm -hmm. That's why I went to, to, a, to a podcast to get stuff out there more quickly for people who need it. So mm -hmm. everything is changing in our world, the way that we consume information. Yep, it is. That's a, that's a long answer to the question around reading and writing, but I just, I think that that's part of it. Yeah, no, I, I, I would, I would agree with that. I, all right, let me grab another one. So I'm looking at my phone because they're on a list. My girlfriend was nice enough because she'd listened to all of the, the stuff, all of our episodes, and she listened to some of your other ones. And she oh, had, she did. That was yeah. nice. And so she has, she has questions. She has always has questions. Okay. Females, you guys are just constantly. Have, yeah, there's never a shortage <laughs> of curiosity. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, so I love that she did that. That is like, do see, that's you just like this beautiful example of love, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. To get you ready. <laughs> well, because she knows that I'm, I'm not the, I'm not the, like, I don't, I didn't have anything written out. I just sort of knew because we've, you know, from what I looked at yeah. and the interactions that we had, like, okay, I, I can, I can throw a conversation together and, 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 uh, but. You know, she's like, well, you should be a little bit more prepared than that. 
<laughs> and I would agree. All right. So do you prefer working with different types of therapeutic needs over others? Like, is there a certain type of issue that, that you, that I, that I, yeah. Well, as I said, I mean, the direct practice work has really been very small and it mm -hmm. really does focus on really purely grief and loss work now. And I, and I think of grief and loss, I don't think of grief and loss and you know this through our conversation together as just death mm -hmm. or death of a person. It's death of something. I really believe that we're always grieving. We're, we're always grieving something in some way. You know, when there is an when there is an ending, there is grief. Even if that ending to something is exciting, like graduating from high school, for example. Mm. You know, that the the new beginning of going to college is very, if, if if somebody chooses to go to college is very exciting, but there's still going to be grief over the ending of that chapter in that young person's life. And so, I mean, I've done interviews with people who are grieving being sober. You and I talked about that a little bit too. Yeah. There's also to the, 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 the person that, you know, when people think that they were a lot more fun to be around when you know yes. they they weren't and so that's tough right because it's like dude i don't want to i don't want to be like not somebody who people want to hang out with and it's like but i don't want to do that <laughs> because it ruined my life you know so and and so you end up a lot of times you just those those friends just fall away and you find you find other Take ones that. that you know what mm -hmm. i mean that are fit more into your your normal now you know Exactly. So there's, but we don't, we're not good about talking about grief. You know, it's the, the, you know, what we hear or the messages that we hear are pull yourself, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, get on with your life, get over it. I mean, we hear all of these different messages that we get about our lives. And so we feel like we're whining or complaining cleaning or whatever if we spend time talking about our grief over something that has changed in our life and so that's really what I that's my passion is to work with people around I guess you could also call it major life transitions that's a good segue into this next question which is going to be how do you how do you keep from taking on your clients' traumas or situations home with you? Or, you know, there's a name for that. I don't know what it is, but there's... Well, you, you hear things like transference and countertransference and things like that in our field. But I want to speak more deeply to the question that you're asking, because this is something as therapists that I think it's always a challenge because most of us are empaths. And what I mean by that is we can feel emotion in a room. We can feel emotion coming from our clients. And, you know, I've been in this, I've been in this field now for close to 30 years, but it's something that I've always had to work on in, in carrying, carrying people's stories without feeling weighted down 
and sad without taking on the emotion behind their stories. And I think that most of us, if we were really honest, that it's, it's always a struggle because we're dealing with human beings that are in pain in some way. And so it's very difficult, I think, for, you know, to kind of set those down and close your door at the end of the day. But it is something that we always have to intentionally work on. And I know for me personally, that has not always been an easy thing for me. I, I, and I, I, I still do it. You're a good example. I interviewed you for four hours and your story stayed with me for several days. You know, but I do a lot of healthy things for myself. I eat well, I do, I exercise all the time and I move the energy through my body, I guess. You know, that's what I try to do is keep moving so that I don't feel bogged down by the things that are happening in the lives of the people that come into my life and share their stories with me. It's yeah, a deep I honor every time. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I would imagine, and being an empath, you know what I mean. It's it's hard for you to not to not feel that. I probably would be better yeah. for someone like me to be a counselor, because <laughs> you know what I mean. Because I, I'm not empath. Well, you know what I. Well, and you're not trying to be a therapist either, right? I mean, yeah. part of that empath is is I think what makes us drawn to the field to begin with is this. It's a calling. It really feels like a calling. Yeah, I think I think I'm 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 full of it on that one. I think that I do. I am kind of empathic because when I watch stuff on TV, I can feel that it makes me cry. You know what I mean? When I hear stories, you I can put myself in that situation and you know empathize with that and and feel emotion behind it. So, yeah, I I probably wouldn't be probably wouldn't be a good candidate for that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about that for a minute. You, you, you have a lot of compassion and I, and I know that just from interviewing you and I think that you have a very open, you've got an openness about, you wouldn't have a podcast because people wouldn't open up and talk to you, you know, so you have yeah. that invitation that you are available to hold space for another human being's story. And that's what a therapist does. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Good point. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> so let's, uh, let, I'm going to pivot just a little bit into sure. the, into the counseling of the adult offenders and juvenile offenders. Let's, let's go with the, with the juvenile, particularly, I don't know if you worked with transitional age, 18 to 24 year olds, or if it was yeah, a little bit were, younger. They were, they were I'm trying to think on that unit. I think they were well, they're still juvies and they're only there typically till 21. And so they either get out at that point or they go to the adult system, but they, it has to be really horrific in order for that to happen. So I worked with kids up until 21 years of age. Okay. Now. And I wasn't no. counseling them. I was running a therapeutic writing program. I was a volunteer. Okay. Okay. Well, that's even better because you're in a you're in a position where they would probably open up and and trust you a little bit more Very than they would so. than they would you know what I mean. I remember as being one of those you know what I mean that there were those counselors that you you knew that you could just you could could fight in and you can you know open up to and, and you wouldn't have to worry about anything whatever you know. So 
Oh, damn it. I forgot what I was going to say. You were asking me about my work with them. So were you interested in sort of how I got the kids to... No, no. What my, my question was going to be is, where do you think, you know, because I've, I've always felt, you know, since I've started thinking about this kind of stuff, that untreated trauma is the number one public safety issue, right? And not dealing with it because the, the, the system doesn't deal with it. It actually further traumatizes some and it. You're you know, talking the, specifically about the juvenile justice system, the prison system. Are you talking, is that what you're talking well, about right now? What, 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 I, what, I, what I'm, yeah, the, the justice system and particularly in the transitional age males, right? Cause they don't really get this. There's, we're missing the mark is, is kind of what I'm getting at. And in the punitive model, where is, it, you think, <laughs> where, where is it do you think that you think we're missing the mark because i have my I, my ideas of where we're missing it and you know how we're addressing it what and we'll i'll counter after you know you answer yours and i'll tell you what i think we're missing i can't wait to hear what you think because it's much more personal for you because you have an inside view mm -hmm. i've been nothing but a volunteer um and so but i can tell you that i think just the way the entire system is set up is punitive i mean it's it's so far from my realm of the way that i think about dealing with human beings but because i don't work in it i also am probably coming from an ignorant place in terms of what that world looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. But when you think about it, you've, the way that the just, the way the whole system is set up is punitive. These kids are, well, first of all, I think our, our mental health system fails them because a lot of these kids that are in juvenile, that are in juvie have addiction issues. They've come from severe trauma. They're, many of their parents are in the adult system etc. So kids that get into the juvenile system, it, 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 it takes quite a bit for them to get there to begin with, right? I mean, these kids have, typically it's pretty accumulative. And then once mm -hmm. they get inside the system, now you've got a bunch of angry teenagers who, are tra who have been traumatized that are locked up together. How do you think that goes? <laughs> right? Not well. And so now the kids are in there they get re-traumatized, they have more offenses on the inside, so that keeps adding to their, you know, to their length of stay in the juvie system. And so it's a very broken system. Mental health system is broken, the juvenile justice system is broken, and I wouldn't begin to even know how to fix it. But when you talk about what's missing, we have a huge hole in our system when these kids transition out. How are they supposed to be successful? What's changed for them? They're going back into the same situation or they're going into a group home. I don't know what's provided for them really therapeutically within the juvenile justice. I think it probably looks very different facility from facility to facility. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking for me what I witnessed with some of these kids. And then, you know, I mean... I'll just give you one quick story of this young man that I had been working with. This was a one-on-one. -on -one. So he, so it was outside of the writing group and I just volunteered on the, on the boys unit with this young guy. He was doing fantastic. They got approval for him 
to go, he was getting out, he was getting released. So he had a job and he was given approval to take a young girl to the prom and they had a chaperone, everything was set up. And the principal of the school said no. So the kid ended up running off the job site, got arrested, and then he got, and then guess what? He elevated to the adult system. I, it, 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 it's so profoundly sad to me when these things happen because he's one, it's anecdotal, it's one tiny story, but you can imagine that there are many stories like this. There are so many different ways that could have been handled. Lack, lack, and, of, uh, lack of coping skills. That's what that kind of speaks to, you know what I mean? Not knowing how to handle the situation when you're told no and wanting to do it and not having the tools. Really, it's the tools and the words and the the verbiage and the vocabulary to express yourself in a way that is not damaging to yourself and to people around you because you don't know how to do that. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. It's like where I immediately went is how the principal could have handled it differently, right? I mean, when I think about these young kids and what they've been through and how can we, how can we hold them in light and love? And, you know, if like, what, why couldn't he go to the prom and what other things could have been put in place to make this happen? Because the promises were broken to this kid again. And I hear what you're saying and, you know, that he didn't have the skill set either. However, everything, he was set up to fail because this was, this was months in advance for him to be able to go to this prom. And it was, it was kind of yanked from him last minute. So I, mean, I that's think a, that's a, that's a small microcosm of, of life. Right. I know. Life, I know. life, life hands you stuff like that all the time. And when you don't have the skills to, to navigate yourself through it, sometimes you implode. Sometimes you, you know what I mean? It, 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 it really comes down to, and, and I, not to cut you off, I'm going to let you finish and then I'll, and then I'll go ahead and, and go. No, you, okay. like I said, I mean, you were that young kid, right? You were that young kid that was traumatized. And then, you know, then you had your lack of sense of self-worth and then it escalated and snowballed. But that's where I would say also to your story of, you know, there were some adults, many adults in your life that had also failed you along that way. You don't end up as this innocent child and in the juvenile justice system and in the prison system. That doesn't happen without, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. It happens through a lot of a, a lot of horrific things that lead to that. But I want to no. hear your, I want to hear what you think of, of what's missing for these young kids. So a lot of it is, it starts out when you realize that these children are having these issues, right? Young. Yes. You have to, there has to be something there, right, in the beginning. And I don't know, I, I, I'm thinking more along the lines of the transitional age, like when you get into 16, 17, 18, where it becomes like, okay, now you're in for a significant amount of time. I don't think that, so when you talk about reentry, right, reentry, mm -hmm. 
because you're going to be coming out at some point, right? A lot of the times mm-hmm. when people Hopefully, go, that's the, that's the goal. Yeah. So most <laughs> of the time, guys, when they get into these situations, right, they don't think about going home until they're close to going home, right? Right. Reentry needs to start from the moment you get incarcerated. You need to be thinking about how am I going to transition from this? How am I going to get through this and then get back out and not go back into this? That is right. never, that is never a thought. Usually you get thrown in there. You, you're, if it's your first time, it's okay. You know, you're dealing with the whole social element of it, right? Am I going to get jumped? Mm-hmm. Am I going to get beat up? Am I going to do, you know what I mean? So there's all of these things that you don't think about anything else, right? It's survival. And, and that's just in like those situations right there. When you get into the adult levels of it, it's usually guys that have one to five years are the ones that have the problems. The guys that are doing long-term 10 years, you know what I mean? Eight, 12, 20, whatever. They're spending significant amounts of time away from people. They usually don't reoffend when they get out, right? They're just, <laughs> uh-uh, I'm not doing that again. It's the one to fives like myself who don't get the, the, you know what I mean? They don't, they don't, they don't follow that model, right? We get in and we don't think about reentry until we're, you know, two months to the gate. And it's like, all right, <laughs> let's, let's think so about you, So, so the whole time that you were in the prison system, you didn't have access to therapy. Mm, not really. Not in, uh, I mean, you could, you could go and do these little like, you know, A or NA classes, you know what I mean? Or, or whatever it is that they offer there. But in the federal system, I was only there for 18 months. So everything was reserved for people that have more time. Right. And there's right. lists, there's long, there's, there's waiting lists for these things. So even if you have five years, you know what I mean? There's no guarantee that you're going to get into that, you know, the RDAP program, which is a drug program or any other of the programs that they have in the federal system. The state system, I don't know a whole lot about because I paroled out of it. And I was only there for 18 months anyway, so too. So there was never enough time. It's every time it was about, you know, all right, well, I need to adjust because every new place is a new set of social things, right? And a new set of rules, a new set of politics for, for that particular place. So, I mean, and this is not just for me, this is anybody that's coming in. So imagine it's almost like, so, so think of it about like, think this is going to be a funny analogy. So, so think of our politicians, right? And they get into office and how much time do they spend actually trying to politic to get reelected for the next, the next term, right? It's about 90% of their, their term is spent trying to get reelected and not dealing <laughs> And not dealing with their shit, that is right? So which, funny. Is, yeah. which is their fucking constituents, <laughs> right? Well, it's the same thing in prison. You know, you get thrown in there and you're too busy dealing with like not getting beat up or bad decisions that you <laughs> no. made in there that are going to get you beat up or, you know what I mean? And so I'm not 90- laughing because I think this is funny. I just have to say that to listeners. I'm laughing at your delivery because it's ridiculous and you're right. Like it, it's, it's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing. And so you have this a, high, a very high recidivism rate, right? The guys are in and out. Juvie was the same way because you had two kinds of kids. You had kids that just exactly what you're talking about, kids that are in there for the long haul and kids that are being tied over for court dates and things like that. So 
they don't get anything either. They don't get access mm -hmm. to anything, but they could sit there for a year, right? Mm -hmm. Or, or you know, whatever. I can't remember. I can't remember the lingo that they use. Something like tied over. I don't remember. But mm -hmm. I just remember that they were in different colored jumpsuits, right? You had the kids that were there for the long term in one color, and then you had the kids that were, you know, waiting for court dates and things like that. So it's the same thing, and so it's just this revolving door where these kids are in and out of juvie until they mm -hmm. either age out or like I said, they have so many, you know, they've done so many different accumulative crimes that now they're going over into the adult system. So if we into can the figure... county jail. <laughs> exactly. And so you can, and, and the problem is too, is that getting programs into these places, a it's lot hard. of it, yeah, it's hard because they don't, a lot of it falls on the, 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 the staff, right? The juvenile, the staff, whatever the, I don't know, the sheriffs or whoever it is, it's this, that staffs the juvenile system, which is the same thing as the, the sheriffs that staff the, the adult system or, you know, the, the prison union or the police union. They're the ones that stand in a way of a lot of these programs because it's going to fall on them to, to have to supervise the room that everybody gathers in to be able to do this right because they can't just leave you know a, a, a the facilitator or a counselor there by themselves with them so well that's interesting i think that that probably is i think that depends too i was alone with the juvies and i was well kids in juvie i yeah, we, yeah. i call them lovingly i call them juvies i loved these children i loved these kids i i volunteered with them for five years but I know in the adult system, it was the same thing too. I didn't actually have somebody in the room when I was conducting the writing. However, there were no violent offenders and, and they were also pre-release. So they were in a situation where they were six months before they were going to be re-entered into the, you know, back into the community, at least for the adults. Yeah. So, so you're you're right too there. I was I was thinking on that one more of the adult, not the not the juveniles, because the juveniles are kind of they don't they there's a little bit more leniency there, unless you're unless you're in a unit that's you know has the more dangerous you know exactly the more problem kids yeah. Mm -hmm. So I I think that something needs to happen in the light of <clears throat> so if you're not able to get in there, like maybe some sort of a correspondent program outside where it's sort of like a, an out an outside mentorship program for guys that have gotten in and maybe you partner with the chapel service or whoever the the chaplain is that goes in there and maybe Good he's idea. yeah maybe he would spread the the information like hey if you want to work on your re-entry program there's a correspondence program that you can get into and you can also be able to call you know you'll be partnered with a mentor on the outside and you can make phone calls to them, you know, like your collect calls. Cause I think that's a huge part. These, these guys get in there and let's just say they don't have no money to on their books to, to talk to their family and not even the talking to their family is going to help because they're just in, and I'll get to all right, well, put that, that could be hold. a big, that could yeah, be put a that, big put that on hold for a second yeah, yeah, get to yeah. that and, and down, down the road. Right. All right. So they they would be able to a go through a work, sort of a work correspondencing, right? So you would send them, you get them on, send them a, a worksheet, right? With some questions. And the next time you call them, 
you talk about that, those questions and then anything else that's coming up, you know what I mean? And you, you're going to be partnered with a mentor who is somebody who's been to prison or been to jail and can talk to you about situations that may arise and, and, you know, while you're there, you know, or what you should be working on, what you should be thinking about, you know, don't worry about that over there, you know, stay away from the gambling and stay away from all of these other things. You need to be worrying more about what you're going to do when you get out. You know what I mean? How are you going to not get into the same situation that you left from? Because are you going back home? Because if you're going back home, if you're going back home, well, guess what? You got, you know, little, little JJ down the street, you got June, June and little Juan over there. And that's, that's one of your, your, your hurdles, but your biggest hurdle is going to be your family because guess what? All of the dysfunctional shit that you've been dealing with and going through from the day you were born till the day you came here, none of you have been dealing with any of it. So you're walking right back into the same situation, which is basically a, a, a dead man's board, right? You might as well just kill yourself now because it's not, you're walking into a bad situation that nobody's ever, nobody's, in, kill yourself now. I'm, I'm not literally, I'm just saying that's like death. You're walking into a, you're walking into what's a, a no-win situation because your family is is codependent, obviously, and they haven't done anything to help their their situation. So you're walking in and you've just come out of a situation where you're probably a little hostile, a little angry. You've probably been bullying your family the whole time, anyways, before you came. So now you're right back into this situation, and boom, you pick up right where you left off. So now you're, you've, you've made a mess out of this situation here. So where are you going to go? Now you're going to hang out with little Juan and Daryl, Daryl down the street and you're right back in trouble again. And you're Right. And you're back in trouble again. And I think that that's part of it. You know, when you ask the gap, the other piece of that is exactly what you're talking about. It's where is the help with the transition of coming out of incarceration and back into society, whether, and that's, integration back into a family unit, integration back into, into the community at large. I, I just, you know, I, I, you're probably going to laugh at this, but Shawshank Redemption is just one of my all time favorite movies. And, and I loved working. I loved working with, with kids and adults in the prison system for all of the reasons that you're talking about and how do we help them be successful when they get out. And it's a, I just think it's a mat. I think it's a huge, huge problem. And it's very sad because if there is no one to help with that kind of a transition, I mean, I know you guys have your parole officers, but they're not helping you to integrate back into your family life, right? Or not what really. does the parole officer do? Do they help? Who helps you get jobs? Like, what is available when you're getting out of prison? Did you have any kind of help? Not really. I mean, it was, they just give you conditions. Like you got to have a job by this time. And a lot of my conditions got met while I was in the halfway house, because in order for me to get out of the halfway house faster, I needed to have a job. I needed to have all these other things, but I had a, a leg up over everybody else because my mom, you know what I mean? She was, she gave me a vehicle. She gave me, you know what I mean? All this stuff that helped me to, to progress, which. To get on most, your, yeah. To get most back the, on your feet. Yeah. Most of these guys don't got that. They don't have that. They what they do they do? What do they do? They they well, they're they're placed on these things where you got a drug test and you have to go, you know, counseling. Like for me, it was there I had to go drug test and then I had to go to this counseling thing. 
they made it so many times a week. And so I would have to, you know, figure out a way to get there, which was fine because I had a car, right? I could, I could leave work early. I could go and you know, do all the things that I needed to do. Now, these other guys, I mean, they didn't even have jobs because they have to ha take a bus to get to, you know what I mean? It's like these obstacles. Right. The obstacles. The, the obstacles are going to be like, all right, man, you know what? What? For what? You know, for what? And that's what it's designed for. It's designed for the people to go, for what? It's easier for me to go back and do what I was doing. And then they funnel you right back into the system. Well, and that's the, that's where I, 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 I got sidetracked, but I was thinking about, I also do think the re-entry and the level of difficulty for re-entry, probably there's a big correlation between that and how long you've spent in, you know, in prison, right? If you're there for 15 years, that's going to be different if you've been there for 18 months, you know, and, and also you've got the guys, the women and men, and, and I had heard this from them too, if they have an addiction, at least for these guys that I, that I was working with that were at pre-release, a large majority of them were in there because of addiction issues. They were stealing, they were selling, they were doing all of the things. And they would say, you know, I'm afraid to get out because if there were a pile of cocaine in front of me, I know that I would use again. And so what do they do? They're not, when they go to prison, you guys aren't in a drug rehab facility, right? I mean, that is not what you're working on. You're, you're stating because you have to, or you're getting it on the inside. And then that's where the re-entry thing comes into, right? And mm -hmm. so, and here's another part of this where I think that <clears throat> they're getting it wrong. They're releasing people back to the same areas that they, that they, right. they offended. And mm -hmm. I think that a part of getting like, if you're in California or yeah, we'll use California as an example, right? So if you're in California and you get in trouble in Southern California, you should have to go and go up to Northern California and vice versa. And so it's like, if you release, this is where you're releasing to, it takes, it takes the family trauma out of it and the family element out of it. And it also takes the friend element out of it. And it forces you to have to, cause when you're, when you're bored, cause you ain't got nothing to do in the halfway house, <laughs> what are you going to do? You got no friends. Nobody's going to come all from all the way down up there to come down and hang out with you. You're forced to have to figure it out. Right. Yeah. I guess I better go get a job. I better start looking for work because they ain't going to let me leave unless I do. There's, there's no options. And when there's no right. options, you, most people do what they're supposed to do. You, yeah. And yeah. What do you mean? Do what they're supposed to do. Well, do, you know what I mean? Like you have, if, if you're in a structured environment, if you don't have any other options to distract you from doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're going to do what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. You just made me think about a, a woman that I am working with right now. One of the few clients that I have, she lost her son to a drug overdose and, you know, he had spent a couple of years in prison. Same thing. It was all due to his addiction and he was in his halfway house and he had just moved out to get more privileges. You know, they, live independently and they go, they have a job and he ended up overdosing on fentanyl. And it was, it's such a tragic story because, you know, 23 year old kid 
doing fantastic. What happened? Mm -hmm. His mother, they'll never know. They don't know what happened. You know, his girlfriend broke up with him. You know, did he go, did, did he try to take his life? Was it accidental? Who knows? But this is what I see over and over is that so much of, I think that there are just so many re-offenders we're really at the heart of it. They've got these drug and alcohol addictions, right? And even when you're, and and that their crimes are related to that in some way, especially mm. when you start, you know, robbing stores and things like that for money or whatever to help support that addiction. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. No, it's just heartbreaking. What what you're you're describing is, I I feel like there's a couple of things at play there. One is the girlfriend that was a trigger. And the, yeah. the not having the coping mechanisms and the tools to deal yeah. with that, to, to, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter that you're doing good. If you haven't figured it out, if you haven't figured out what you're going to do in that situation, right? Because it's going to come up as an addict, it's going to come up. You're going to get confronted with this at some point. You're going to be put in a situation where the, the your immediate auto response is going to be, your the default. Yeah. The default. We it's default the... <laughs> to what we know. And, yeah. And so he hit that default, right? Because he didn't have the tools to deal with it. He probably f- talked himself into it. Like, hey, I deserve this. I've been doing good. Because that's what we do. I've done it myself. Like, oh, I deserve this. I've been doing well. I've look at how good I'm doing. One time won't hurt. And right. and 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 she broke up with me anyway. So what do I need to why do I need to stay sober for now? It's that you're talking yourself into it instead of talking yourself out of it. What you should be doing is is playing the tape of like, okay, how could this go wrong? How badly could this end up instead of all the reasons why it's okay for me to do it? And and then once you do it, but once you do it, now, now that we're in the fentanyl era, right, you don't know anymore about what right. you're taking, how strong it's going to be, what it could be. And then some of these people, when they, when they stop using for two years or, or longer, they go back to the same amount that they used the last time they used and they don't have the tolerance anymore. So if there's some fentanyl in there, bye. <laughs> well, and our fentanyl is, ki- it's killing our young people, right? And, and our adult and our adults too. I mean, things that are laced with fentanyl, I read a story not long ago on two young girls who college age, who had eaten gummy bears, you know, with THC gummy bears. Like you would never, you'd ever think about that edibles are going to be laced with fentanyl. Didn't even know that that was happening. Snapchat. Did did you watch the Joe Rogan episode with Dr. Phil on it? No. So you can have, watch this one. It talks about okay. this, right? So Snapchat is where all the kids are, right? So they went and they did a, a thing where, so Snapchat has these menus of things that you can buy, like edibles, like different other things that you can buy on there. You hit a number, I guess, and it can get delivered to you. Well, a lot of the stuff that they, oh they, they pulled off of there and they tested, all of it had fentanyl at, in it. Fentanyl. And so what, Dr. Phil says is he's like, this isn't, this isn't an epidemic. This is a terrorist attack 
because all the fentanyl is coming from China and it's coming up through through the Sinaloa cartel through Mexico. And if you know your history, all right, I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw some, I'm throw some conspiracy out there for everybody. But if you know your history, right, there was a company called the East Indies Trading Company way back in the day when the opium wars were happening and Great Britain saturated China with opium and set their, set their society back like 50 years. And so, and I think that this is just nothing more than payback for what what because we're we're considered the west great britain united states we're still the west mm-hmm. right we're still we came from that and so we still are that and so that's where i think it's all coming from and it's just a, really another interesting. it's just another it's 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 a different attack on our on our country i mean we're at war right we're at mm-hmm. war with a bunch of different places and a def- and, and different things and we can't have hot wars like we used to especially being that we're the superpower that we are they they can't attack us in that way so they have to do it in other ways and so that's where you're seeing the the dissent the like the the bots and stuff that cause all the chaos in the elections and and stuff like that and then also the oh what else is it the i don't know the i can't remember what i was saying but you get what i'm you get the point I, I, I do, and you know, and I and I and I would have to agree. I think that that's an I hadn't really thought about it as a terrorist attack, but you know, we are losing so many people through fentanyl overdoses, and it's and it terrifying, you know. And and I was, you know, I talked to my I do not have any children, but of course, a, you know, the majority of my friends have adult children, or at least kids in college, and. You go to college, you go to a party, you pop a pill, right? Isn't that part of the whole college experience for a lot of kids is you are experimenting with different things. And now you can't do that in any kind of a, it's much, it's much scarier now, I think, for parents, but the kids need to get the message, nothing is safe. You, you can't even smoke a joint. You don't even know if the joint is laced. I mean, it's a scary world that these kids are growing up in. Mm-hmm. And of course, we also know for our adult population that all also have addiction issues that they are also, they're dying. Yeah, you, you have to ask yourself this question when you, you look at it as, as the terrorist part. Why would, I mean, if this is a business model, what kind of model kills their, right. their clients? That's- Exactly. You and know what I mean? It, that's not. it doesn't make any sense. And so that's always the question. Like, I, I know even me and my, you know, my, my friends who are therapists will talk about that. Of course, it doesn't make any sense. You don't, you don't kill off your customer base, but these dealers, I believe have no idea that these drugs are laced with fentanyl, but I would, I mean, these are just inferences that I'm making, but what do you mm-hmm. think about that? I mean, do you agree with that, that they don't, they're not aware? I would, I would think that some are, <clears throat> I would think that some are not aware, but the potency of the drug, right? There, there's, I mean, even with the, even with, if you just look at the Snapchat thing, right? If that's legit, if that's legit true, and it's all over Snapchat and kids are, are 
purchasing from these, right? And I just don't, I can't see it as anything else. You know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense. And then knowing the things that I know about, you know, the history and then paying attention to all the other stuff that's happening around us in the country and the world. And they know too much. <laughs> and it's, sometimes it's maybe overload. Right. But I mean, you mm -hmm. have to look at things in that way, because especially in the last three years, what we've uncovered and, and even in the last Twitter file thing that's been going on for the last three weeks, what Elon Musk has uncovered over there and what was going on. I mean, you have to question everything now. I mean, nothing is what we really thought it was, you know, unless you're not, unless you're, unless you're stuck on CNN or, or Fox news or <laughs> some other, some other corporate media legacy outlet, right? If you're there, you, you're, you don't know what I'm talking about. You, everything that's coming out of my, my mouth right now is like blasphemy. You know what I mean? How dare you, you right. know, think, talk about our, our whatever democracy that way. But I mean, if you're in anywhere else other than that, it's very, very apparent where we're at, you know, and it's just up to, you know, us as citizens. I mean, you know, the citizenry of, of this country and it's, and it's not even so much this country. It's just now we're aware of it in this country. But if you look at all the other countries across the world and you see how little freedom they have, yeah, I mean, it's just look i mean they're they're that's what governments do <laughs> you know they don't they don't want you to they want you to be good citizens and do what you're supposed to do and toe the line and don't you know don't get out of line and you know china's really good about it <laughs> you know look at tiktok i don't know if you've been hearing about you know tiktok i was just listening to a podcast about you know trying to ban tiktok and and i think it's already banned in some states because the app the app, I believe, is from China. And there's all this. I haven't finished listening to the entire story on the Wall Street Journal, but you know, there's theories about that too, what they're collecting and the information that they're getting from TikTok users. Mm -hmm. So we we don't be I don't think we really have a grip on the way that we are monitored and followed. I mean, not to get into weird conspiracy, I just think it's true. Like we're we're on social media, we're being tracked all the time. Data, what do you, every time we do anything, anytime mm -hmm. we click anything, all of that is data. Why do you think if you jump on your computer, all of a sudden I'll see five shirts that I looked at over Christmas, right? I mean, <laughs> there's a reason for that. You know, they start targeting you and the messages that you get and all of those things. It's like we're, I mean, we are essentially being controlled mm -hmm. through all of this data that's being collected and what's being marketed and to us, you know, as soon as we jump on our computer. Yeah, I mean, if well, you, if you think about it too much, it's ter it's actually terrifying. <laughs> well, I mean, from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, it doesn't matter what it is you're doing. Your phone's trying to, your, your phone is tracking you. It's, it's, yeah. it's figuring out your, your routines, your patterns, your, your spending, your this, your that, everything, right? Everything. You talk, you, you, it hears you say, I need to, oh, I, I'm, uh, God, my tires are getting bald. I need to get some new tires here at some point. You know, you go, two hours goes by and you go back on your phone. All of a sudden you got some tire, tire Bad. advertisements, right? Yeah. And you're like, what? 
no no okay anyways and you say something else to somebody and you know maybe one person goes yeah but like five of them go oh you're crazy right and so then you think yeah yeah maybe i am and you don't think about it anymore until it happens again right well i mean yeah. at what point is that not is, that's we're always being tracked we're always being tracked i mean we yeah, just yeah i mean that is that but is that freedom i mean are we free I mean, you got to start asking yourself those questions, right? Or is this just a, a, a an overlay of freedom, right? And th we're really in these these mazes, right? These mazes of flow, of citizenry, right? And so we think that, you know, mo for a long time I thought we were free, right? With you know, it's like, oh yeah, freedom, America. All, you know, all, all these things that you think of, right, when you think of freedom. And the last three years, it really showed that not really, right? They, they, they have the, the media, this huge leg, which controls at least 60 to 60. I'm going to say 65% of the population. You know what I mean? It controls them and their thoughts and, you know, the agendas that are, are being played out, you know, through whatever it is. You get this, it happens, and that it happens. And, you know, the the anything that's a, a, a part of the Associated Press is a part of the media conglomerate that's controlled by a few. Mm. Not like a whole bunch of different companies. Mm. It's like four, right? Like four. Four billionaires which are a part of the other billionaires that control the other legs of, of industry, gas and oil, pharma, yeah. all these other ones, right? And those are only owned by a couple of people, but they all are a part of these investment firms, which are called BlackRock, Vanguard, Black State Street. All these big firms are, are all these people, all the billionaires, the, the one sixteenth of the sixteenth of the percent of the one percent. And that doesn't include the the millionaires because they're nothing. The millionaires are nobody, right? Yeah. The billionaires are the ones that really are are, are they the at country. the party. Yeah. Uh, they're at the party. They're 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 making things happen. I mean, just think about it. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it is. You know, I remember way back in the day. I mean, this was a long time ago when I took white collar crime, and my eyes were really big when I'd hear these stories. Like, oh my God, you're kidding! You know, and of course we always hear the big thing that's happening for us in the mental health field right now are these entrepreneurs that are starting these startup companies, right? There's a lot of startups you've heard of them, Cerebral and Done and Better Health, and there's a whole bunch of them out there that really took off during the pandemic because, you know, now. Mm -hmm. People who didn't have access to mental health, didn't have transportation, et cetera. Now you can jump on Zoom and I can have access to a counselor just like that quickly. And, you know, and then Cerebral, they just did a three, a four part series on the Wall Street Journal podcast around controlled substances for ADHD, for example, Adderall. And when the pandemic what? hit, the FDA... Yeah, the FDA suspended all of the a lot of the regulations around controlled substances because people could not get because prior to the pandemic you had to go and you had to sit with your provider and they had to assess you in order to determine whether or not you know did you really have ADHD what do you need for a med etc. But during the pandemic, 
that the FDA suspended that, the regulations around that to make it easier for people to have access that weren't, you couldn't go see your doctor. I mean, you just couldn't, we were all in. So then they, so they, the, the CEO was ousted and they, you know, and they were under investigation, et cetera. And, but this has been happening with Dunn. They had some issues as well. And, you know, when you talk about ph pharmaceuticals, they make billions and billions and billions of dollars. So you can imagine that if people have an addiction issue, controlled substances are very addictive, right? So mm -hmm. wouldn't you go to Cerebral if they, if you could have a 30 minute assessment and get yourself some medication <laughs> that makes it a lot easier. They were not, I don't, I don't believe they were trying to cause harm, but I think like any of these startups, it was, they you can imagine they just exploded, right? People are like, word on the street, you can go to Cerebral. Well, a young kid ended up dying, took his own life. And we know, you know, with some substances like Prozac, things like that, there are warnings that it can make you feel homicidal or suicidal. And they weren't supposed to see young people without consent, yada, yada, yada. And this is what kind of blew the doors open on it was this kid took his life and then subsequently the parents found them the prescription mad and it linked to cerebral, et cetera. So mm. I don't even know what got me on that tangent, but. Well, I mean, it's, if you really think, if you think about it, <clears throat> better help was they had a huge marketing campaign it's and better, they're yeah. on all, all the big podcasts, Joe Rogan, they're better help, better they, help. I even, they are huge. I even called them and cause I was, you know, wanted to, for whatever reason i was like i need somebody to talk to let me let me call them and see what what they got right mm -hmm. and oh what it, was your experience i'd love to hear it was it was all i didn't talk to anybody i don't think it was all back and forth on email and i was like they gave me a price and i was like it was like 54 or something so 50 dollars in a, a session and i was like ah it's a little expensive probably not gonna do okay well we can send over some numbers and and uh, your your financial information which they didn't really verify they just asked some questions and then they knocked it down to like 35 or something and so it's i they're they've got some room they try to get you at a high number and then they'll they'll try to lower it to a point that they can bring you in yeah i mean and i think you know, I, I just think that it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword because when, now that you've got telemental health, it, it does make it more accessible for people. You know, like I said, people who have transportation issues or people who might, you know, just for whatever reason, aren't able to get to a therapist, that it makes it so much easier for people to have that. But as, but then there are other issues that can also come. I mean, I've heard, you know, not necessarily about better health, but other telemental health where clinicians aren't getting paid in a timely way or clients don't see the same therapist twice or, you know, so I think that there are, there, there are huge pros and cons to both with this new telemental, this new telemental health model that we had prior to COVID, but really exploded after COVID happened. And, you know, I work with clinicians around the country and that there are some places that have now, even if they did have brick and mortar, are still in this hybrid where 
they're still continuing to see their clients like us on a zoom call or whatever. Yeah. I, and so, and that's, a, that brings up another point, right? And so if you have all of these, these counselors now that are going to be in, you know, they don't need to have a brick and mortar location because they could do literally what you and I are doing right now. Yeah. You know, I mean, I could even jump on my couch if I wanted to, and then I didn't want to see you and have these headphones on and you can yep, talk to absolutely. me through, talk to me through a session, right? Cause it really, yep. that's all you're doing. You have your, I've, I've done sessions before where I've had my eyes closed the whole time pretty much. Cause I'm just, yeah. you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, people so, are in the comfort of their own home. Exactly. And so, so as somebody who works in commercial construction, right. What's the need? for us to do new construction anymore when you're going to have all of these vacant office buildings, offices, you know, places, because people are now working from home. I mean, even though some of these folks are trying to get these people to come back, it's, it, you know, once you've, it's kind of hard, you know, once you've, unless you force them, you know, but I mean, are they, can you prove that they're less productive at home versus at the office. I mean, you know what I mean? And I just think it's, I think a lot of people realize that how much time they waste in commuting. Yeah. It's time you can't get back. I I struggle with this all the time. I mean, you know, two hours, sometimes two and a half getting home. I mean, that's, there's a lot you add that up on a week. That's. It's a lot. Yeah. But, and and I, but I, I would say that that's a personality thing, just like students, like you have some students that are very self-directed. They can take the initiative. They did great during COVID. Other kids, it was horrific. Those kids that do struggle, you know, and, and need that interaction and they need that additional guidance. And I think it's the same with adults. It's a personality thing. I've worked remotely now for I don't even know, 25 years, forever. I've, and you know, for, I've worked remotely for a very long time. I love it. Other people really struggled with COVID, like they couldn't focus or, because you have to, it's a mindset. You know, if you're in the office and you're scheduled, it's, you're there to work. And some people love going to a place. I love working from home, but there's a discipline to it. Right. That especially if you're not scheduled on calls, that you have to be pretty disciplined in terms of getting your work done because you can you can get very distracted when you're at your house because <laughs> there's always things that can get done at your home. <laughs> no, that's true. If you have kids too, that's another another one. But yeah, I mean it's just, you know, it's it's gonna be interesting to see how all of this I mean, because it you see it's a I mean, even from the digital currency, right? You look at what happened with the FTX F thing, right? The Sam Bankman Freed. Well, I mean, I think it's really interesting that this guy, you know, comes out of nowhere and he's the biggest donor to the Democratic Party. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have the crypto fall, right? The whole crypto, you know, all of that took a dive. And then this Friedman guy character comes around with the biggest heist of, of crypto and, you know, the history of whatever. Oh, yes, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then you have the Binance thing that happened, which is a little smaller, but the, it, it all is happening at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what does that do right on the heels of that? You've got the, the federal government now wanting to, to regulate it. Right. Ooh, look what happened here. Now we got to regulate this thing. And so yeah. it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's all an act, man. I mean, they, they, they put these things, I mean, it's, it's too scripted, 
you know what i mean and and as we know from what we've been watching it's the it's getting harder and harder for people that are in the know to be fooled anymore you know and so anyways we got on to a tangent of of my conspiracy my conspiracy minded stuff so we're at an hour and 15 which is probably way past your bedtime and <laughs> I, I, I could go on forever because i'm a talker but maybe we'll we'll revisit you know on a, on a on a time when we have more time to talk like it's during the day you know what i mean and you don't need yeah, to go but to bed. This, is, this has been wonderful though because you've you've really sparked you've re ignited my passion for people in the people in the prison system actually well a minute we need to talk about that at some time too because i've been trying to get into some here and it's difficult it's even to the one the the boys ranch that i was i was a play i was there i mean who better to to talk about this type of stuff than somebody that's been through your program and you know is is, is where they're at and so it's just, it's, it's been hard. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know if it's going to take me having to write this book and then start speaking and then get some notoriety, notoriety behind my name and my story that it's like, oh yes, we want to have this guy. Well, it's, I always used to joke about it. It's hard to break out and it's hard to break in <laughs> <laughs> because it's a very dense locked up system. And I know that for me, just getting in there to volunteer took a lot of perseverance mm-hmm. on my end. You know, I had to, I had to jump through a lot of hoops to finally be able to even get into volunteer. I just think it's a very locked up, dense system, and there are a lot of hoops you have to jump through to be able to get on the inside. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, it's. Well, so I was sent something. Check this, this woman out. She goes into the prison systems and I'll send you a, uh, a link to this too. Is that um, the one who goes in and interviews them for stories? No, she actually goes and she does the, she does the compassionate, the compassion prison project. Her name is Fritzy something. And she's the one that does the circle. And she says, step forward if, boom, right? Step forward if, and it's like all these men that are in there and like they've never dealt with their, those situations, right? They never really even thought about probably, you know, hey, if you were, you know, beaten as a child, you know, step forward. If you were abandoned as whatever, step forward. If You know what I mean? You don't, mm-hmm. you don't think about that. You, you definitely don't think about that. Yeah, yeah. Send yeah, that I'll send to me. It. I- I, I would love to see what they're doing. Yeah, I'll send you the, because uh, I have the news, the CBS news thing, and then also her website and everything else. I'm going to try to get her on the show and uh, and interview her about, you know, how she got into that and how it's working. Because she's dealing with the situations inside. I yeah. want to be able to, to I want to, what I want to create is something where I can catch them on the way out. You know what I mean? Either help them yeah. while they're in and then be that catch on the way out and figure out where they need to, you know, how we're going to like as a mentor, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I've loved this whole conversation, even though we've sort of, I, I feel like we've kind of been all over the place, but I think it leads back to, I think it, I, I think all the work that you're doing and it just the, in the name of your podcast is there's nowhere to go, but up. 
but I think that there are populations that are so oppressed and so held down that how do we as a society help them, you know, grow those pair of wings so that they can actually fly. And, and as cliche as that sounds, you know, now that we, I, I think that we've been talking about the prison system and the juvenile justice system that I think they're such oppressive systems that I think it's very challenging for people to get out and to succeed. So I appreciate well, the conversation. The folks like me who've been in the situation and yeah. you know, others out there who, you know, especially the ones that sometimes they've done the 20 years and they've gotten out <clears throat> and they need something to do. Yeah. That those are the ones that are going to be the people that move these guys forward and through whatever it is that they're coming out of. And we need to intrude into this system, right? You know, we, we always wait for, you know, an invitation to come into the system and, and to help. No, no, no. We need to intrude into it. And however that is, whether it's, you know, the correspondence through the, through the mail, right? I can't get in, I can't get in the doors. Then I'm going to come through the mail system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. We, it's going to take. Let's set up time for you and I to talk more specifically about this. Actually. I'd love that. Okay. No, for sure. We will. Definitely. I've got your website there on the screen there, Susan Casey or Susan E. Casey.com. Yep. Yep. Um, that's where all of the leap podcasts, everything that you're doing, your book, your, your all, everything Susan Casey is over there on her website. So yeah, there'll be I'm links leaving, to that. And, and I'm working on that website. And then the course, uh, the grief and loss course, it's nine weeks. I'll be putting that up there at the end of the month. Okay, too. great. And then all your social media and everything, you've got the links to that in your within your website, correct? Yes, everything's in there. Yep. All right, cool. And thank you. Well, thank this. you for coming on the show. I'm I'm so happy to have you. You know, there's I felt like there's a reason why you and I cross paths, and you know, we're we're figuring that out as as we move through our relationship and getting to know each other and how we can help benefit each other in in the future and helping other people. And whatever population it is that we can figure out how to bring some, some help to. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you. I love the work that you're doing with this podcast. I've been listening to your episodes as well. You just had a really powerful woman on. What was her name? Oh yeah. That was Madeline Black. Madeline. Oh yeah. She was really, what an incredible story. Yeah. She's the unbroken. Yeah. She had the TEDx talk that I had. Yeah, to... I watched her TEDx talk. I watched it. It was incredible. Yeah, she's a great, a great speaker. There's some, David DeRocher too. He's another one that I had from the TED talk. You should, I'll send you that too. That's he's doing the stuff at the Other Side Academy up in Utah, which is a therapeutic community, which is a behavior modification. It's not a drug rehab. Interesting. Yeah, I would love yeah. anything. Send me any anything like this. I just would love to even connect with these people who are doing yeah. some really cool work out there. Cool. No, I'll do that. I'll, I'll email it to you. Okay. Thank you. Have All a right, great Susan, night. you have okay. a good night too. Okay. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.
You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.